All right, I want to begin by playing a little bit of a word association, if that's okay. I want, I'm just going to say a couple of words that I want you to sort of think about what, what immediately sort of uh, comes, uh, comes to mind, okay? So uh, Christmas dinner, all right? So what, what word comes to mind when, or what thoughts come to mind when I say uh, Christmas dinner, okay? All right, good. <laughs> uh, rock concert. <laughs> All right. Mowing the lawn. <laughs> Jury duty. <laughs> right, jury duty, jury duty. Not a lot of us have real positive, you know, Christmas dinner, I think everyone's like, sign me up. A rock concert, ah, maybe. A mowing the lawn, us, you know, half and half, kind of divide the congregation in half. Jury duty, almost 100%, like, no thank you, right? And that's just kind of part of our culture. Part of Corinthian culture was that if uh, jury duty was considered uh, entertainment, uh, the courts actually took place right in the center of the marketplace. And people would go, even if they weren't there for jury duty, they would just go and sit in on a, on a criminal case, or they would go and sit in on a, on a civil case. Uh, people suing people and people being charged and all of it being very public was right at the core of Corinthian culture. And as you can bet, uh, since the Corinthians had all kinds of problems, one of the problems that they had that Ping just read, read to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 was that they were regularly, as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ from the same church, they were regularly taking one another to court. The title for today's message is A Dispute Among Brothers. A Dispute Among Brothers. Brothers. Now, you might be thinking, okay, Ted, um, I, I, I heard the passage read. I'm looking at it in my Bible. I don't enjoy jury duty. I've never been to court. I don't plan on suing the person in the next chair. So can I just slip out the back and like get my, my uh, Christmas shopping done? Because I don't see how this is really relevant to my life. I don't want to go to court. I don't plan on going to court. How is it that this, that this passage can make any sense or apply to my own life? Well, fundamentally here, what we're going to explore is what should we do when we are wronged? How should we respond? The, the Corinthian way was just, just sue the person. Take them to court. If I feel offended, if I feel upset, if I feel like someone has done me wrong in any way, I'm going to take them to court. It's going to be very public. It's going to be shameful and expensive for the other person. And I'm going to prove that I'm right. Now, you may not regularly find yourself in a courtroom you may not plan on suing another brother and sister in Christ, but that same desire to be proven right, that same desire to make the person who did you wrong pay some sort of price in order to balance things out in terms of justice in your own, in your own mind, all of us struggle with that, don't we? And even though the church is supposed to be a place of humility and harmony and holiness, so often the church can be a place with pride and conflict and selfishness. 
Rather than being shaped by the gospel, we're so often shaped by our culture. The Corinthian culture was shaped by this idea of going to court, dragging someone publicly, shaming them by bringing these accusations against them. That was part of their culture. Our culture, it looks a little bit differently, but not that much different. As we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians, we've noticed that the church at Corinth was really struggling with two problems, conflict on the inside and compromise on the outside. I showed you this chart when we first started uh, the book, but it's important for us to come back to this. So there was lots of conflict within the church. The first four chapters was the fact that they were divided into these, I follow Paul group and I follow the Apollos group and, and, and I follow Peter and then there was all of the, the, the ways in which they were compromising, wanting to become like the world, following the wisdom of this world and the sexual ethics of this world. And now we're talking about lawsuits. We're talking about the church's conflict and their inability to resolve those conflicts, kind of outsourcing conflict resolution for trivial cases. Now, Jesus had already laid out for us what to do when we're offended. When we feel like someone has wronged us, Jesus gave us a, a three-point plan that we're supposed to, to follow. Some of us are familiar with this. Matthew 18, this is the Jesus way. What do I do when a Christian wrongs me? Step one, you go to them one-on-one. -on -one. You approach them privately and, and candidly. You, you go up to them. You, you, you approach them. If that doesn't work, step two, you bring a witness and then step three is tell the church. That's the Jesus way. One-on-one, -on -one, bring a witness, tell the church. The Corinthian way was take them to court. <laughs> there's no one-on-one. -on -one, there's no witnesses. You don't include the church. You don't try to resolve the conflict on your own. You don't escalate things. No, you immediately take the person to court. And this was really damaging the church's reputation in the world. And this was really damaging the relationships within the church family. And so Paul is concerned about that. And that's why he addresses this here in chapter 6. Now it's important for us to note, if you look at verse 2, he refers to these as trivial cases. So I don't want you to misunderstand what Paul is saying here. Paul is not trying to undermine the authority of the legal system in his day. And we should not be undermining the, uh, the authority of the legal system in our day. Churches have got into a lot of trouble when they have tried to handle internally something that really ought to be handled by local civil authorities. What Paul is talking about here is trivial cases. He's not talking about, uh, uh, he's not talking about abuse. He's not talking about a, a crime being committed. He's He's talking about simple, everyday offenses. And so Paul is not advocating here for the church to cover up a scandal, not, not, not advocating that the church not cooperate with law enforcement or, or with judges or civil authority. That's not what Paul is getting at. So we need to be clear. I think all of us have read enough newspaper articles to know that sometimes churches try to handle things internally that really ought not to be handled internally, because they are matters that, that concern the state as well. So nothing illegal has taken place. No, no crime has been committed. This is what Paul calls trivial cases. The problem here is that the Corinthians had little respect for the church's ability and authority to settle disputes and disagreements among their members. 
And really, the church, once again, is abdicating their responsibility to discipline their church family. We we saw this at the end of chapter 5. There was a member of the church who was living sexually immoral, and they were doing nothing about it. And here we have these brothers and sisters in Christ who who are taking one another to court over trivial matters, things that should get resolved the Jesus way, like Matthew 18, and they were not doing it. They were allowing these things to go public in the courts. Look with me at verse 1. Paul says, when one of you has a grievance against another, there's no crime that's been committed. It's just a grievance. Someone's just upset. Someone has been offended. He says, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Would you dare to do that, Paul says? Just like in earlier in chapter 5 when he was talking about sexual immorality, he says, it's actually reported among you. Paul's incredulous. He, he's shocked. He's surprised that, that rather than following the Jesus way of one-on-one and a witness that involved the church, they're just rushing off to the marketplace to get this handled in court. So what's happening here is a failure of the church to resolve conflict. Paul asks here, Eight rhetorical questions. And I want to break down what he's saying. Asking these eight questions. You can see it there in the text. There's eight question marks. And it really, three things that happen when the church fails to resolve conflict. When church members fail to reach out to one another and to, and to, and to manage offenses and grievances interpersonally. And when church leaders fail to see the, the infighting that's taking place, three things happen. Here's the first one. When, when the church fails to resolve conflict, number one, we misunderstand our status as saints. We misunderstand our status as saints. Paul says that at the end of verse 1, that you go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints. The unrighteous instead of the saints. That word unrighteous in Greek is is adikos. It's in other places translated wicked or unjust. Now, Paul is not saying here that the judges are bad at being judges, When he says unrighteous, he's not saying that the judges themselves, the the worldly judges there in the marketplace at Corinth, he's not saying that they're bad at doing their job or that they're corrupt, although there certainly was corruption in the Greco-Roman court system. Look at the life of Paul at the end of the book of Acts. You've got people asking for, uh, for bribes and doing favors to one group or the other. Certainly was corruption, but that's not what Paul's saying when he uses that word unrighteous, when he calls them adikos. You know, when Jesus talked about how um, the Father causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, the, the adikos, the, the, the unrighteous, it, it's just the general term used to describe unbelievers. And notice the contrast here. He says, you, you're bringing these, these legal cases before the unrighteous instead of the saints. Those are Christians. So he's contrasting non-believers with Christians. That's what he's going after. So he calls the, he calls the, the unbelievers adikos, the unrighteous. He calls the Christians saints. Turn back in your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 2. This is how Paul 
called the church at Corinth. This is how he referred to them. He said, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Christians are saints. Saint is not some special category for some uh, elite group of Christians. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. Saint means a holy one. It says there in chapter one, verse two, that we've been sanctified, which means to be made Holy. Notice how similar the word sanctify and saint sound because it's from the, the same category of words that Christ has made us holy. And when we go, when we go to, to the secular courts over small matters or when we so insist upon being right, we lose sight of our status as saints. And he says in verse 2, do you not know? Here's this next rhetorical question. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do, do you not realize, Christians, that you're abdicating your responsibility to resolve these minor cases? You're going to these secular courts, these unrighteous, unbelieving judges are having authority over you? Do you not recognize that one day you're going to judge those judges? That one day you're going to judge the whole world? This was prophesied back in uh, the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 22, when it talks about the coming of the Lord Jesus. It says, until the ancient, of the, days, the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So it is the saints, it is the people of God, it is the people who have been made holy by God that will judge the world, that will have authority over the kingdom of the world. Jesus said in Revelation 3, 21, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That Loved ones, there is a sense in which, I'm not sure what this is going to look like, but in the new heavens and the new earth, as Christ is meeting out judgment, because our judgment has already been taken care of on the cross, that Christians are going to participate in carrying out that judgment. Remember, Adam and Eve, when they were first created in Genesis chapter 1, God blessed them. He gave them what? He gave them dominion. They were supposed to rule as kings and queens, as vice regents over the world. And when God makes all things new, when we return to heaven 2.0 in the new heavens and the new earth, we will reign with Christ, which involves judging with Christ. But the, the Corinthians were so short-sighted. They, they forgot their status as saints. They weren't thinking about the end and where things were headed. They weren't thinking about eschatology. They were just thinking about how upset they were with the person that offended them. And Paul says, listen, get it in perspective. I know you're really upset, but think about what's coming your way. Get it in the right perspective. Think about your status as a holy one, as saints. Then look with me. Keep, keep looking at, verse, uh, at, at chapter 6, now look at verse 3. It says, do you not know that we are to judge angels? So again, I mentioned this before. Every once in a while, Paul in 1 Corinthians just throws the word angels uh, in there. Um, 
when he's uh, talking about uh, the, the church at Corinth thinking that they're acting like kings and Paul is like a spectacle. He's on parade on the way to Colosseum to be executed. He throws the word angels in there. When he's talking about head coverings and headship and, and, and the difference between men and women, he throws in the word angels. And here now, Paul says, with no explanation, he says that we're going to judge angels. I don't know. It, it, are these the good angels that are like in heaven serving God? Are we going to be involved in judging fallen angels? I, I don't know. Paul, give me a little more details here. <laughs> I don't know. But Paul here again, he's trying, to, he's trying to show us our inheritance and our status as followers of Jesus Christ, that we are saints. And this world, the things of this world that we're so focused on, we're going to judge the world. Not only that, in some way, shape, or form, we're going to judge angels as well. Verse 2, he says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And then here's another rhetorical question. And if The world is to be judged by you. Get it in perspective. Think about your status. If the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to judge trivial cases? Like, can't you figure this out? Can't you trust God with these small, trivial things in light of where you're headed? Then verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Get it in perspective, church. Stop being so selfish and prideful and centered on conflict and have a little bit of sense of the holiness that you've been called to and the humility that comes with knowing that God has made you a saint. And let's live in harmony with one another and not in so much conflict. So when the church fails to resolve conflict, we understand our status as saints. That's the first thing that happens. The second one is that we misrepresent the church to the world. We misrepresent the church to the world. Look with me at verse 4. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. It's happening in front of unbelievers. Remember, The courtrooms didn't happen behind closed doors. It was right there in the middle of Square One Mall in the atrium. That's that's where it happened. I know no one goes to malls anymore, but I'm trying to think of a public place. I wish we could go to public places again, but no one's going anywhere anymore. But think about a public, busy place where you could stop and listen. It's like live music or a busker. For entertainment, people would just sit or stand and listen to the court cases. This is all happening before unbelievers. And so the judge is, you know, talking to the plaintiff. Uh, so, uh, uh, Mr. Plaintiff, can you tell us uh, your relationship to the defendant? And everyone's listening. The whole world is listening. And the plaintiff has to say, uh, I go to the same church as the defendant. We're, we're, we're misrepresenting the church to the world. Our, our witness, just like Paul was saying about sexual, immoral, sexual immorality at the end of chapter 5, that we were, the, the church was engaged in something that even the pagans, even the non-Christians were, were, were thinking was outrageous and unacceptable. 
Paul's concerned about the the witness of the church to the world. You see, this is a double failure. Not only were these brothers and sisters in conflict with one another that they couldn't resolve, that's fail number one, but fail number two was that it was happening so publicly that they were dragging one another into court. Now again, we don't regularly sue one another as a church. It's yet to happen in the 12-year history of Hope Church where one member has taken another to court. But we do groan and complain about our brothers and sisters in Christ sometimes, don't we, to our unsaved family. Sometimes we post things on social media. Sometimes we, we, we witness Maybe not in our church, but we see blogs, we, we see videos, we see things being posted where the ch- rather than hold the, trying to resolve things among us, things go public very, very quickly. Now, of course, there are some things that need to go public. When, when public individuals sin in heinous ways and try to cover it up, there is, there is a sense in which that needs to go public to protect the church. But not in these kinds of situations. This is all happening before unbelievers. Paul said in verse 5, I say this to your shame. And he says in in verse 5 also, he says, is there no one among you? Like can't anyone, isn't there someone that you can trust? Isn't there a mature believer that you could go to to get some help to mediate? Is there no one among you, and look at the word he says, no one among you in verse 5 who is wise enough. Remember the church at Corinth thought that they were especially wise and that they were tuned in to the wisdom of the world. That's why Paul had to clarify in chapter 1, verse 18. He says, I, I don't preach the gospel with the wisdom of the world, because if I preach the gospel with the wisdom of the world, the cross would be emptied of its power. And then he talked about in chapter 2, verse 6, he talked about we do preach wisdom, but it's a spiritual wisdom. And then in chapter 3, verse 18, he said, If you think you're wise, you better become a fool. You better learn that you're actually not wise. And then in chapter 4, when he was contrasting the experience of the apostles versus the experience of the Corinthians, he said, you are wise, but we are fools. The the church at Corinth was obsessed with wisdom, sounding smart, being eloquent, quoting philosophers, making Christianity fit into the box of of the philosophical perspective of the world in which they were living in. They were continually talking about wisdom, talking about wisdom, but not living with wisdom. Paul says, isn't anyone, and he just uses that word on purpose, isn't there anyone wise enough? I thought you were the wisdom church. I thought you were the church that that was filled with wisdom. Isn't there anyone that's wise enough to handle a trivial case? You see, wisdom is not just talk. Wisdom is practical. Wisdom is problem solving. Wisdom is conflict resolution. And the church at Corinth just didn't have that. It was a church that was filled with pride and conflict and selfishness rather than humility and harmony and holiness. Keep reading verse 5 with me. Is there no one among you wise enough to settle? Then it says, a dispute between the brothers. Verse 6 says, but brother goes to law against brother, 
and that before unbelievers. He uses that word brothers, and it could be translated brothers and sisters. Brothers, your brothers, your brothers, your brothers. This is the third and really the most important part that we need to think about. We need, we need to be conscious of our status as saints and where we're headed, that we're going to judge the world, we're going to judge angels, so we should be able to handle these minor trivial things. And we also need to be mindful of how we represent the church to the world. we got to maintain a witness, and that witness is so often destroyed by infighting within the church. But then lastly, Paul keeps calling them brothers, that this is a dispute happening within the family. So here's the, here's the third thing that happens, that we, when we fail to resolve conflict, we end up mistreating members of God's family. We mistreat members of God's family. When a piece of Lego goes missing in the Duncan household, it's a big deal. It's, it's a really big deal. There's a lot of Lego. I just feel like my parents, Lindsay's parents, aunts and uncles, they didn't know ever what to buy our kids other than Lego. So like all we have is Lego. And our kids love it. But if a piece goes missing, it is a big deal. Now, accusations start to get made. I saw you with it, or you were alone with the Lego. And sometimes there's circumstantial evidence, and, and, and sometimes there's forensics, and people are taking fingerprints, and we're trying to figure out who took the Lego. It's a big deal in the Duncan household, but it's in the Duncan household. We don't run out into the street. We don't gather all of the neighbors. It's a family thing, right? And family things should stay in the family. Again, hear me on this. If one of my sons did something illegal, we would need to involve the authorities. Because that, the fact that we're family doesn't change that. You, like, you gotta, when something serious happens, but when it's trivial and it's within the family, you just solve it as a family. You don't include the neighbors. You don't go on social media. You don't call the local news. You don't write a blog post. You handle it within the family. And what the Corinthians had lost sight of, they were so focused on being proven right. They wanted the person that offended them to get hurt. They've been hurt. They want to hurt back. That they had totally lost sight of their witness in the world. And they had totally lost sight of that person that they're taking to court is their brother or their sister. So Paul here is telling them, look with me at verse seven. He says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, and here's what he says it again, even your own brothers. Paul says, this, is, this is, should be a family thing. And you've lost sight of the fact that you're saints and God has made you his children. And because you are all children of God, that makes you brothers and sisters of the same family. Even your own brothers you're taking to court. And notice what he says in verse 7. He says, to have lawsuits at all 
To have them at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You're going to court. Why? Why do you go to court? You go to court to win. You, you, don't, you don't go to court just for the, no, you want to win. You want to win the case. Think about the New York Jets coach. You know, you play the game to win. You go to court to win. But Paul here is saying, even if you win the case, the very fact that you had to go to court means you lost. You lost. He says it right there. It's a defeat for you. And then he lays out some other options. Why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather be wronged? Why not live like a Christian? I mean, this isn't a new teaching that Paul is saying here. Why not just be wronged and just deal with it? Why not just let someone defraud you and, and move on? This isn't original with Paul. This goes back to the wisdom of the Proverbs. Proverbs 19, verse 11. Again, in trivial cases. Hear me, I'm talking about trivial cases. Minor offenses. Good sense makes one slow to anger. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. That's the wisdom of Solomon. How about the wisdom of the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus, Matthew 5, 29. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. How much more so if it was a brother or sister in Christ and it was probably just an accident? Don't drag them to court. Don't try to prove that you're right. Again, Peter talking to Jesus in Matthew 18. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Peter thinking, that's a lot, right? Like seven times would be a lot for me to overlook an offense, to, to forgive a brother, to, to, to suppress or to give to God that sense of wanting to be right, wanting vindication. And Jesus said, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times times. This is the Jesus way. The Jesus way is if you are offended, then yeah, of course, okay, I guess just go one-on-one. -on -one. And if they don't listen, then, then bring a witness. Then include the church. But the Jesus way so often is just to, to forgive the person and to move on. Again, in trivial cases, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 15 says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil. We don't have to make them pay. We don't have to prove that we're right. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. When he's talking about see that no one repays evil for evil, he's not just talking about evil that's done to us by non-Christians. He's talking about within the church, within brothers and sisters, because it says, seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Romans 12, 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Why not rather just be defrauded? Think about, the, think about what it will do to the church family. Think about what it will do to the church's witness. Think about eternity and where you're headed as a saint and factor in, why don't I just let myself be defrauded or let myself be wronged in this small, trivial case? 
But Paul knows that isn't happening. In verse 8, he says, But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. You yourselves wrong. That word wrong, it doesn't come through in our English Bibles, and there really isn't a way to make it come through that I've seen in any of the English translations. But remember that word atticos for unrighteous, that means wicked. Wrong is the verbal form of atticos. So atticos means unrighteous, unjust, or wicked. Adikeo, basically the same word, just a verb instead of a noun, means to do something wrong or to act wickedly. So Paul says, but you, so don't go to the courts before the unrighteous. He says, but you are unrighteousing one another. He's, he's what's he doing here? He's called them saints, but he said, the way that you're behaving is you're behaving like an adikos. You're adikoing one another. You're acting like the unrighteous. You're treating one another in unrighteous, wicked, and unjust ways. And Paul says, it can't go on like that. You're acting like unbelievers. You're not acting like saints. Now, how is it that we can choose to be defrauded? Look at verse 7. He says, why not rather suffer wrong? Suffer wrong. It's not easy. What, what kind of a mindset do we have to have? You can only have that mindset if you know you have nothing to lose. The person who goes to court thinks they have something to lose. That's why they feel like they must win. The person who must be proven right and goes and talks about the person behind their back about how they've been wronged or does this or does that, that person has everything to lose because their hope is in something here on earth, whether it be their reputation or their wealth or whatever it may be, they have something to lose. But when you have nothing to lose, you can gladly suffer wrong. Remember, we're saints. We're going to judge the world. We're going to judge angels somehow. Remember, chapter 3, verse 22. All things are yours. Paul, Apollos, life, death, the world, the future. You got nothing to lose, church. By all means, suffer wrong. Because you have nothing to lose. You see, we can lose sight of the gospel. When we lose sight of what Jesus has done for us, then we get offended by what other people do or what other people say. And then we need to be proven right. But we, we, and we start to act like we are unrighteous. Now look with me at verses 9 to 11. We're gonna, verses 9 to 11 are so important, particularly in our day and age, that in the new year, um, we're going to look at, at these three verses uh, just, in, just in isolation. The next two, or sorry, next Sunday, we'll have a Christmas Sunday together and then a Christmas Eve service and Boxing Day. And then uh, on into the new year, we're going to come back to 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 9 to 11. But look at what Paul says here, just to get a sense of perspective on this passage. Verse, verse 9 says, do you not know that the unrighteous, there's the word again, the adikeo, Paul says, don't go to the unrighteous, the adikeo judge. He says, by the way. In going to the judge like that, you're acting like an adikeo. You're adokeoing one another. You're being unrighteous. He says, do you not know that the, right, the unrighteous, the adikeo, will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He gives this warning. Don't act like an unrighteous. If it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck, if it walks like an unrighteous, if it's living unrighteous, and if it's acting unrighteous, then why are we supposed to believe that it's, that it's a saint? That he or she is a saint, not it. Verse 11, this is the key. So he gives this big list of unrighteous deeds, of deeds that don't honor the Lord. And then he says, look at verse 11, and such were some of you. He says, that is part of your past. Such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, time will not allow us to get into the meaning of all of those words, but just understand this. Here's the list of what it means to be unrighteous. He says, such were some of you, but you've been changed. You've been sanctified. You've been made holy. You've been justified. You've been declared innocent. Church at Corinth, Church at Hope, Mississauga. We want to take other people to court, whether it be the physical court or whether it just be the court of public opinion or our own little courtroom where we're judge, jury, and executioner and we're gonna prove that we're right and that person's wrong. We wanna take other people to court but we forget that God could have dragged us into court. He had a grievance against us. He was offended by our unrighteousness. And he is the judge. But loved ones, he chose to forgive us. Such were some of you. So who are we to judge? And who are we to drag brothers and sisters in Christ into court? I mean, if we want to talk about a court, what about coming before the throne of God as an unforgiven sinner who hasn't been covered with the blood of Jesus Christ? So Paul puts it in gospel perspective. God had a dispute against us and loved ones. It was not a trivial case. And the cross shows us that it was not something trivial. It was not something small. Loved ones, it was treason. Rebelling against the ruler of the cosmos. And yet for that massive case, Jesus suffered wrong on our behalf. So because Jesus suffered wrong for us, loved ones, we can gladly, because we have nothing to lose now, because we have Christ and all things are ours. Loved ones, we can gladly suffer wrong when offended in a trivial case by our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Our Heavenly Father, I, I can... I mean, as I've been thinking about this message and praying about this message, Lord, there's, 
there's two dozen situations that I know I've been offended or disappointed or upset by something another brother or sister in Christ has done. And Lord, I know that I, I just need to let so many of those things go. And I thank you for the, the perspective that the gospel brings the perspective looking forward that we are saints who will one day judge the world and the perspective looking backward that Christ was judged on our behalf. And so, Lord, sometimes things that are small can become a big deal to us. Help us to see things in the right gospel-shaped, eschatological perspective. And so, Lord, if, there are, if there's even conversations that need to happen uh, this afternoon, even within families or within this broader church family where people just need to say, I'm sorry, or I forgive you, or you probably didn't mean anything by it, but, Lord, help us not to miss out on the opportunity that comes with humbly and, and joyfully walking together in harmony. And God, we thank you that before your throne, before the throne of judgment, that we have someone who is interceding on our behalf. We have someone who suffered wrong. We have someone who was put in our place and judged in our place. And may we be filled with awe and wonder that your son came and that he came to pay the price so that we could be forgiven. In Jesus' name we pray.